We are going to be in Romans chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Uh, We're going to do verses 8 through 14 today. when When we read Romans 13, a lot of times we're talking about the first half of that chapter. I want to look at the second half. I, I thought about doing Romans 12 through 15, it, but that's a lot. And so we need to be done before 2.30 today. So we're going to do a few verses that I think encapsulate what Paul is teaching in 12 through 15. Um, and the title will be uh, of the sermons, Everyday Christianity. So if you're, if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to talk about everyday Christianity. What does it look like to live out the Christian life every day? Um, it, we were on vacation, my wife and a couple of the kids, Joseph and Anna. Um, Caleb's a big boy now, so he gets to, like, he works and does his thing. Um, that's bad. I shouldn't have said that. Um, so we're on vacation, and we're enjoying some time away. And then the day before we come back, Beth, my wife, says, well, Tomorrow it'll be time to get back to everyday life. Now, I was thinking about that. It's kind of true. We, we like to have getaways, and we need to have a break every now and again. But the vast majority of our life is lived in what we would call everyday life. We go to work. Uh, we do family. We do home. We're part of church community. All of these things. And so I think... Romans 13, 8 through 14 helps us answer the question, what does Christianity look like lived out in our everyday life? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the text. Let's pray. God, we are, we are grateful and we are humbled that you love us. God, even as we sang those songs and think about the good news that Jesus came and died in our place, that we could be saved from our sin, and God, we are sealed by your Spirit, and we have an eternal hope that we'll be with you forever. God, thank you. God, and then you... You give us life here to live with you so that we can bring glory to you, God, and be a testimony to who you are and to what you've done in us. So, God, I pray that we would would hear your word. We would understand it. God, help us apply it. God, speak to us today. God, work in our hearts. I pray that you would change us, that we would be transformed by the power of your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of context. Paul tends to write letters, and Romans is similar this way. The first half or the first part is theology, usually heavy theology, stuff we need to know and understand so that we can have sound doctrine, we can believe correctly. And then the second part is usually more practice. And Romans is broken up similarly. Romans 1 through 11, we get a lot of theology. Really, we get the heart. I think we get the heart of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. And then Romans 12 through 15, we get a lot of practice. What does it look like to live out the gospel? Um, Romans 1 through 5, we're going to do a quick review 
so that we know where we're at in Romans 13. Romans 1 through 5, Paul's talking about justification by faith. The righteousness, the righteousness that we have in Jesus through faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul talks about that through Romans 2 and 3 and 4 and into 5, and he talks about our sin and how we've all got it. He talks about in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness that we can have comes through the Son of God, Jesus, and we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And as we move into Romans 8, verse 1, I remember reading this verse as a relatively new Christian in college and being blown away by the truth of Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have been made right with God. We have peace with Him. We have hope for the future. And there's no condemnation. I remember looking back as a 19-year-old at high school years and thinking, wow, there's things that I could be condemned for, for sure. And Jesus has made a way for my sins to be forgiven. And I'm filled with His Spirit. Union with Christ and the work of God's Spirit. Then in Romans 9 through 11, we see, and, and really the, kind of the, the question is answered, how are the Gentiles included with the Jews into God's people. And then Romans 12 through 15 really is everyday Christian living. The first part of Romans 12 talks about us, how we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And then it talks about how we offer ourselves to the church, the people of God, the community of God, the family of God. We come together and honor him also talks about loving your neighbor and living out the gospel. The first part of Romans 13 speaks of living as a dutiful citizen of whatever country or nation you belong to. Loving others and living in light of Jesus' second coming. The second part of Romans 13, that's what we're going to look at today. And then Romans 14 and 15, he talks about seeking unity and building one another up in love. And then finally, at the end of 15, the beginning and middle of 15, actually, he talks about living on mission. Romans 15 and 16 conclude with personal remarks. It always amazes me as I look at Paul's letters. And, and turn there for just a second. I, I want to say this, and hopefully it's edifying to you guys as well. Look at all of the names of people that Paul mentions at the end of this letter. The, the folks that Paul had done life with, he had done ministry with, 
They, they, you know, we, sometimes we talk about life as you know, we do it together. We do it shoulder to shoulder. Life on life. Paul had that. And I believe that's one of the things that God's doing at HCC as well. I'm grateful that my, my two sons are here. Um, because he has godly brothers and sisters in Christ that they're, do, they're doing life with together. Paul had that. So as we, we dig in more here to Romans 13, 8 through 14, what I want to look at real quick is two aspects of everyday Christian living. It's a two-point sermon. I don't know if I've ever done that before. I know you guys are used to the robust Adam Goodwin, maybe even five-point sermons. Um, Dustin jumps up every now and again with a ten-pointer. And I'm like, is he preaching or hunting? Right? Um, sorry. Dustin. We're just doing two today. Um, so let me read Romans 13, 8 through 14, and then we'll see what God is teaching us. Romans 13, 8. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Verse 11. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. I think the first aspect of everyday Christian living that, that we learn here is this. One, love is the primary duty of Christians. It's verses 8 through 10. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. Now, this is not a Dave Ramsey lesson in avoiding debt, where we don't owe anyone or we don't take that out. Though, you, that's another lesson for another day on being wise and being a good steward, but it's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is this. As Christians we have an obligation to love others. Love is the primary duty of Christians, and as Christians, we have an obligation to love others. Now, if you look up in verse 7, just above here, as Paul is talking about the, the, what a dutiful citizen of a nation or state looks like, in verse 7 he says this, Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Interesting. When we lived in Asia, uh, in a country that was 
communist-ish. And as people became Christians, one of the questions they would ask is, should we pay taxes? I mean, what's our money going to? I think probably sometimes we ask the same question. Um, should you pay taxes? Yes, you should pay taxes. It says so right there. But then Paul, in verse 8, makes a very good play on words, and he says, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. If I am obligated to pay my bills and to pay my taxes, how much more am I obligated to display the very thing that defines our faith? The love that God has for us and the love that he calls us to have for him and others. Jesus commanded this love. In John 13, he says this, I give you a new command. He's speaking to his disciples the night before the night he's to be arrested. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 4, verses 19 through 20 say this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Guys, love defines who we are. Love defines who we belong to. Love is the evidence of a life that has been born again through the work of the Spirit of God. God has given us the ability to fulfill this command he loved us, therefore we are able to love him and love others. Think about this, the, the debt of love, the debt that we owe to others in that. So think about debt. So we also, we had a debt of sin, right? A debt of sin that we could never repay. And Jesus came and paid that debt on our behalf so that we could belong to him. And we have a debt of love. Because we belong to Jesus, we have a debt of love that we owe to others. Jesus has provided the way for us to continually pay that debt out on a consistent basis as we walk in love and we love others. We have an obligation as people who belong to the God who loves. We have an obligation to love others. We also notice that love fulfills the law. Here's the thing. Love and law are not enemies. It says at the end of verse 8, loving one another. If we've done that, we fulfilled the law. And then look at verse 9, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Any other commandment. They're all summed up by the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers have come together and they're asking Jesus a question. They're trying to trick him. They're saying, what is the greatest commandment? What's that one thing that captures everything? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're called to do. So how do love and law come together. Adultery. Think about this for a minute. Adultery. Adultery is the height of rebellion and lust. 
Love, on the other hand, is faithfulness. Love is godly faithfulness to another person. Murder. Murder is hate and rage. Love, on the other hand, desires to see others flourish and grow and do well. Stealing. I kind of define stealing here as disrespect on steroids. I'm taking it from you, man. I don't care about you. Love, on the other hand, blesses others generously. It's what we're called to. And if stealing is disrespect on steroids, then coveting is jealousy on steroids. However, love shows contentment and trust. Love doesn't want to take it from you. Love isn't jealous of it. Love wants to give. Give generously. We see this in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God didn't hoard. God didn't try to keep it. God's love is such that he gives it. He has to. Here's the thing about love. Love is eternal. Before people were ever created, love existed in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were loving one another perfectly. They always have been, and they always will. And when God brought people into the world, it wasn't because He needed us to worship Him. It wasn't because He needed us to fulfill some kind of relational hole that He had. He had it all. He wanted to share that love with us so that we could be His people. And ultimately, when we look at what God requires of us, it is that God requires us to love. To not live rebelliously or lustfully or hatefully with rage, disrespect, and jealousy. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to desire others to flourish, to bless others generously, to be content and to give. That's what our life ought to look like as we love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Another thing here. Guys, he's speaking of neighbor. He's speaking of the people that we interact with on a daily basis. So I would say this. Not only is love an obligation that we have and, and love fulfills the ultimate law of Christ. But love is practical. Love makes a difference in the lives of, the other, of other people around us. Look at, turn back just a bit, Romans 12, 9 through 16. And Paul here is speaking of very basic Christian ethics, super practical and love is at the heart of this ethic that we're called to. And I want you to look there for just a second. He says this, let love be without hypocrisy. Guys, don't be two-faced. Don't be one thing 
here on Sunday morning and then another thing somewhere else on Friday evening. Love without hypocrisy. Detest evil and cling to what is good. When I read that, I see community of believers working together to live a life of holiness, accountability. Be a part of a discipleship group where you have brothers and sisters coming alongside you to spur you forward in love and good deeds. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Look at this. Outdo one another in showing honor. I am sure that there are some people here that have a little bit of a competitive spirit, right? Does Campus Collective ever play games? Do you ever have anybody that has to win the game? Outdo one another in showing honor. Read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and what that godly community looks like. Paul's talking to that young pastor, Timothy, and he says, show respect to the older men. Treat the younger men like brothers. Older ladies, honor them like you would your mom. And the younger ladies, treat them like sisters. Guys, the way that we show love to brothers and sisters, Jesus said this in John 13, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The way we love one another well here will make a difference in the way we engage Marshall Campus, the way we engage our workplace. Then he says this in Romans 12, do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. I think part of what Paul is talking about there is walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that fruit that is love. And then joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Love is generous. We've talked about that. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. God loves a cheerful giver. What, what have you got to give? Just give it. Give it to God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Him. That's what it looks like to love. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. God calls us to live out Philippians 2 humility. We're, we're being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. If you are a Christian... Your, the main goal in your life is you're being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. You're being made more and more like Him. Embrace Philippians 2 humility. Live that out in harmony with others, not proud, associating with the humble, and see what God will do. When In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was confronted and questioned about what it meant, to love, about what it meant to keep the commandments. And he said, love God, love others. The example he gave of that was the Good Samaritan. And the ones that should have helped 
the, the one that was hurting on the side of the road didn't stop and help. And the one that probably had an excuse to walk by, he stopped and he helped and he loved. Look for people around you. God will give you opportunity to love on them. We're called to love. Love is the primary duty of the Christian. Second point is this. Faithfulness to Christ prepares us for his second coming. Look at verses 11 through 14. There's a transition here. Paul says, besides this, so he's, the, the love that we are to have and to live out every day, he says, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Paul is going to begin to talk here about Jesus coming back. Guys, it's one of the great hopes that we have as believers, Jesus' second coming. Here we begin to look at as well the beautiful work of Jesus in the, in the past, the present, and the future. They're, they're bookends, Romans 12 and Romans 13. In Romans 12, at the beginning there, we see in view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So this encourages the Christian to look at the, the present, offering myself as a living sacrifice in view of the past. Because of the mercy and the love that God has for me, I'm going to offer myself to him. We live with that perspective. But we also have another perspective, and we see it here in Romans 13, 11 through 14, where we're called to wake up, to walk in decency, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the perspective has shifted, and we are to look at the present and to live out our present in light of the future, that Jesus is going to come back. And we want to be ready for that. We don't want to be found unprepared. We don't want to be found asleep. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8, I'm going to read that. It's a clear uh, parallel here between these two. And I think it adds some commentary and some richness to what Paul is teaching in Romans as well. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Paul calls us here to wake up, to be alert, to be ready for service. In verse 12 there he says, The night is nearly over, the day is near. Let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Walk in decency as in the daytime. He explains 
the opposite of that, not in carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 and, and Luke 12, Jesus teaches very similarly. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaking about his return, he says this, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except nobody knows except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be Alert, as that's the message here, and Paul says it, wake up, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, it is, if the homeowner had known that time, the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. We have a funny story. When we moved to Asia, our house was broken into one night. We weren't prepared. We had no idea that was going to happen, so we were asleep and our house gets broken into. Well, we figured out we think we knew who it was that did this. And, and we had made a plan to catch them, try to set them up and catch them, right? So we had this elaborate plan, and, and, and we uh, put everything together. And long story short, they did not come back. Uh, they did not steal anything else. We obviously did not catch them. But we were ready, I'm telling you. We stayed up all night long. We had set up a wire trap hooked to a, a, a paint can. Yes. Have y'all ever seen like Tom and Jerry or <laughs> Wiley Coyote? Right? That's what we had done. Um, we were ready. We were alert. Stayed up all night. Um, that's a bad example of what Jesus is calling us to. But he calls us to be ready. Here in Romans 13, he says, besides this, you know the time. It is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. That word time is, is the word kairos, and it, it literally means an opportune time, a special time or season when God is sovereignly planning and working something out. One of the times that God is working out is when Jesus comes back. And we could be a part of that. Paul and the early believers, they believed that it could happen in their lifetime. It didn't. That doesn't mean that God's not faithful. God always keeps his promises. I was thinking about this. Um, Genesis 3, God makes the promise that a Savior will come, crush the head of the serpent, and win victory over death and sin. It took thousands of years for that to be fulfilled in Jesus. We don't know when he's going to come back, but we're called to be alert, be ready. The time could be here anytime. I think what Paul's saying here is get up. Don't be lazy. Don't be caught slacking on the job. Or this idea of kairos. Don't waste time. Don't waste those kairos moments. For this culture, 
It's a very practical thing. You would get your work done before the heat of the day. They lived in, in the, a hot climate. It was dry. There's a time to rest, but there's also a time to get up and get to work. It's the same for us, especially in light of the imminent return of Jesus. Here's what I would say about the imminent return of Jesus. His coming is certain. It's going to happen. Jesus himself says so. But the timing is unknown. The certainty of the event encourages our faith. The uncertainty of the time stimulates us to watchfulness and action. Right after Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 24, he continues teaching in Matthew 25, and he he talks about the ten virgins. Some of them were prepared for the bridegroom when he was coming. Others were not. We want to be those who are prepared. He also speaks about the three servants and the talents that are given to them. Two of them were good stewards and used those talents well, and they were ready when the master came back. One was not. We want to be people who are awake who are alert, who are ready for service. Faithfulness to Christ, that's one of the things that it looks like. Another thing is this, we want to be people who walk with decency. We want to be self-controlled. Verse 13, walking in decency, not in carousing and drunkenness. We discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is that language, and we often see it in Paul, the the putting off and the putting on. We put off the old man and we put on the new man. Decency has this idea of an appropriate life. And at times that word, the original word was used for appropriate attire. Now, this isn't that we need to have a dress code. I'm not saying that. Some of the Christian school kids are like freaking out a little bit now. Um, But it does mean honorable living, Decent behavior. And this idea of decency and and the, the right kind of attire, putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ. Example of that is, he, he says here, uh, discarding the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. It's like taking off your nighttime clothes and putting on your daytime clothes. Have you seen the people at the grocery store that walk around in their pajamas sometimes? No. Some of you are thinking back like, okay, did I do that? We don't want to see people in their pajamas, right? There's an appropriateness to taking off nighttime clothes and putting on daytime clothes. We're called to be people who discard the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Put off the old. Put on the new. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this. Speaking of Jesus, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. We don't live there anymore. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's Darkness, sin, we put it off. Light, righteousness, we put it on. We're called to walk in love, and we're called to walk in righteousness. Finally, here at the end, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've been talking about with the put off and put on. But I want to take it just one 
step further here. If you look at Romans 8, 29, I've mentioned this already. Goal of the Christian is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Spiritual formation. What we've defined it this way is we're preaching through a, a series at, at Cross Lanes Baptist where I'm one of the pastors. The process of being conformed to the image of Jesus for the glory of God, for our good, and for the blessing of others. This is the life of being consistently filled with the Spirit and bearing more and more spiritual fruit. It's where we don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. When I read that, I thought about how sometimes our mind goes to places we don't want it to go. And we begin to think and process through, well, what would it be like if I did this thing that I really, really sometimes want to do? That temptation that, that Adam and Eve had to, to be like God. Wow, that's appealing. And we begin, if we're not careful, to, to make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. We begin to take steps in that direction. And you all have all probably heard the illustration of that slippery slope, right? And at first, it's not that scary as you take that step, because you're still pretty close to the, the edge over here that you could grab a hold of and you could get right back to where you need to be. But the more we follow those plans and the more we let sin become a part of our desire and our thoughts, the farther we go down that slope. I've heard people say as we begin to, to go down, one, you get to a point it's really, really hard to turn around. Sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will cost you more than you ever thought you would have to pay. Do not make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus, being conformed to his image, growing in his likeness, Loving God, loving others, being faithful to walk with Jesus and in hope and anticipation, looking forward to the day that he returns. I believe there is clear mission in these verses. Actually, Matthew 24 has clear mission. As Jesus speaks about his coming back. He says something in Matthew 24, 14 that I believe we see a parallel in, in Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. He says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Paul says in Romans 15, 20, and 21, this mission of taking the gospel to all of the nations. He says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named 
so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. As we love and we live out the faithful Christian life, part of that is living on mission, taking the gospel to others who haven't heard yet. I'm telling you, there are students coming to Marshall Campus this week who have not heard about Jesus. They don't know anything about him. And it's not just the international students. I want to encourage you, engage the international students. Share the gospel with them. They will hear it. Some of them will hear it, and they will realize this is the best news they've ever heard. Like was prayed about Nepal and the Buddhism and the Hinduism and the demon worship. And they'll see a God that loves them, that gave his life for them, and they'll see that good news. But there are students from West Virginia whose grandparents and maybe even their parents grew up in church, but those kids know nothing of Jesus. Please share the gospel with them. As we conclude, I just want to... I got in the car this morning, I'm driving over here, and I'm, I'm thinking about loving God, loving others, being ready for Jesus when he comes back, and the mission that he's called us to, and the beauty of that. And then that, the Revelation song comes on. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. And God is on the throne, and the Son of God is there, and all the nations are together worshiping him. And that one day, we have the hope of being with that crowd, that, that congregation of worshipers together singing praise to Jesus. God, I want us to live in light of that. Everything we do here has an impact on how that will come to be. I'm not saying we are sovereign over the times. God is sovereign over the times. But he gives us an opportunity here in this life to live for him, to prepare for his return. And with hope and action, we're ready for him when he comes back. Let me pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would Keep changing us, that we would be people who are conformed to the image of Jesus. God, that we would know how to live out your love every day, and we would be ready and watchful and faithful as we live and anticipate Jesus coming back. God bless this church. God bless the outreach next week, throughout the semester. God bless folks who are at work, where they live, and and play, God, as they are engaged in your mission as well. I pray that more and more people would know about you, more and more people would believe in you. God, your name would be great. In Jesus' name, amen.